Lucas on Life. Hello, I'm Jeff Lucas. Thanks so much for joining me for Lucas on Life this Sunday evening here on Premier Christian Radio. Saturday night's all right for fighting, so sung Elton John. And in some churches, especially over the last 18 months of pandemic pressure, Sunday mornings have been a good time for fighting as well. Regular listeners to the show will know that last week we were looking at the challenge that the pandemic has brought to churches. There's been plenty to fight about, which is why I'd like us to think a little more about unity tonight. We Christians are people of convictions, which is vital. In our relativist world, where everyone seems to think about living my truth, which is kind of weird because there's no such thing as my truth, something's either true or it isn't, There's a danger that as people who are confident in our convictions, that we become arrogant in the way that we express them, not only to the wider world, but to each other. So tonight, let's continue to think about and pray for unity in our local churches. It is well with my soul from Matt and Beth Redman. And it's worth pausing for just a moment to consider the origin of that great song. The original version was written by Horatio Spafford back in 1873. And the hymn was written after some really traumatic events in Spafford's life. The first was the death of his four-year-old son. And then during the Great Chicago Fire of 1871, he was ruined financially when a property that he owned in Chicago was damaged by the fire. But then the tragedies began to multiply. He determined to go to England to help the evangelist D.L. Moody with his evangelistic campaigns. But in a late change of plan, he sent his family ahead while he was delayed on business. And while crossing the Atlantic Ocean, the ship sank rapidly after a collision with another sea vessel, and all four of Spafford's daughters died. His wife, Anna, survived and sent him the now famous telegram, Saved Alone. Shortly afterwards, as he travelled to meet his grieving wife, he was inspired to write these words as his ship passed near where his daughters had died. You see, out of the mist of tragedy and trial, he was able to write, it is well with my soul. Well, turning from the sublime, the challenging, to the slightly ridiculous, let's just continue to think about maintaining unity. I'm not terribly good at hobbies. It's not just that when I relax, I feel guilty or because as a hopeless quickaholic, I'm so addicted to Russian activity that I can't settle easily into play. It's more that my personality demands that I throw myself into any new interest with wild abandon until I get bored and then abandon the new pursuit totally. So it was with scuba diving. I loved the beauty of the crystal clear waters, the fun of avoiding the gaping jaws of moray eels, the majestic gliding of giant sea turtles. I loved it so much that I even considered diving as an occupation and was thumbing through magazines, pondering ads for North Sea Oil rig divers, while my wife Kay looked on with a wry smile. She knew that my obsession would last for just a few days and then I'd move on to something else, and I did. But I have never yet moved on to golf. Hoping that I might stay interested in golf for longer than a month, Kay followed up my first visit to a golf course where I played with a group of Japanese golfers who spoke no English, which was a blessing, seeing as I ruined their game with my ineptitude, Kay gave me a gift of golf lessons. 
The certificate still sits in my bedside cabinet, the lessons unclaimed. It's not just because I'm rubbish at golf, mine is not a swing, more a spasm, and it's not just that I think it's ultimately pointless to spend all day trying to use a stick to nudge a ball into a hole, or even more tiringly, 18 consecutive holes while avoiding sand pits. Most sports involve doing useless things expertly and in the shortest time possible, so that's not the reason for my golf loathing. No, the roots of my disdain are to be found in my childhood. My trauma is superficial. Mummy didn't run off in an electric cart with a chap who was wearing check trousers. They're driving off into the sunset, limited by the 15-mile-an-hour capacity of the vehicle. Rather, my aversion is due to a rather painful collision between me and a golf ball. While camping with my family on the side of a golf course, must get round to asking why we did that, I was walking between the tee and the green when the white cannonball struck. I'm too gentlemanly to specifically describe the area of my body that took the hit, but the arrival of our first child was greeted with great joy and relief. It was a shot below the belt. Literally. Ouch. And so I tend to avoid golf courses. Sometimes I've been tempted to avoid some churches too, because I've taken a few direct hints since, involved as I've been in church leadership. Again, being passionate people, blessed with convictions and opinions, sometimes we Christians disagree, and sometimes we squabble. Disagreement is inevitable, and in fact, it's healthy. It's proof that we're not in a cult, which is good, because I look horrid in orange. But surely we should disagree agreeably and commit to fight fairly, maintaining our unity, even as we struggle with our diversity. I've witnessed a few bare-knuckle cage fights where the saints have gone marching in with hobnail boots. The Apostle Paul had scars that proved his faithful apostleship. I'm short on scars, but like most Christian leaders, I've got quite a few bruises. Christians can fight dirty when we make impossible demands that can never be met, as did one lady who insisted that our church wasn't loving enough, a charge that was difficult to evaluate because there's no measuring instrument available. And even if we did get a bad reading on the non-existent loveometer, what was I supposed to do about it? I can hardly sprinkle Lucas's secret lovey-dovey dust over the congregation while they're not looking. She seemed blissfully unaware that her own lack of love and grace was not exactly helping us in our love score. Another punch in the kidneys is the accusation that the teaching isn't deep enough. What exactly is deep preaching? Does deep mean that Tom Wright has often been quoted, that a grainy image of an ancient Mesopotamian tablet has been flashed up on PowerPoint, and that the sermon has been sprinkled with a few Greek words other than kebab? Some Christians seem to think that deep teaching happens when they don't understand what the speaker is talking about, as if their confusion is a sign that they are truly connecting with the transcendental. On the other hand, if a complicated idea is presented clearly, They are tempted to believe that the content is lightweight and the speaker is lightweight too. Thus, the better teacher you are, the more likely you are to be accused of not being deep because you're gifted to make the complex accessible. There's no way to win when that kind of attitude prevails. Another jab in the solar plexus so damaging to unity is the statement, lots of people agree with me on this, or Everyone is leaving the church, as one permanently offended lady said rather sniffily. I asked who was evacuating. Loads of people, she said. Who? Two or three people are leaving, she insisted. 
their names, I asked. I am leaving this church, she said, as I resisted the temptation to headbutt my tambourine. I have repented of that poor attitude. But the knockout punch is thrown when we have a fight and we insist that God is the one who agrees with us. He's on our side, surely, in our corner. When we thoughtlessly lob phrases around like, God has told me, God is with me, God agrees with me, or bizarrely, God likes the music that I like, we throw firebombs that usually turn a small spat into a world war. Before, we were having a rational discussion, but now, in disagreeing with our opinion, others are forced to imply that they don't think we've heard from God and that we may well be self-deceived. Dissenters become enemies, and calm conversation is rendered impossible. Sadly, too often leaders are the ones who resort to this kind of warfare. Feeling insecure, some leaders are too lazy to allow healthy discussion when members of their congregation ask even the most reasonable questions. Suddenly, the inquirer is tagged as being difficult, awkward, or worse still, divisive, a threat to the unity of the church, and a witch burning is in the offing. This is actually cowardly behaviour and so unnecessary. It would be easier to treat the question and the questioner with respect and perhaps even make an attempt at an answer. So, as we've been thinking about unity, if we do have to fight, let's fight nicely. With that in mind, I'd like to suggest a new practice when the church starts to feel like a driving range. Sometimes we say amen when we agree. So why not yell for when someone drives an unfair and dangerous verbal shot? That way, everyone will know that it's time to duck or quickly climb into a pair of armour-plated pants. As we've been looking at the subject of maintaining unity in our churches both last week and this week, regular listeners will remember that during last week's show, I made an astonishing statement that might have come to quite a shock to a few of us, and that is that we can be wrong. So shocking is that statement, I think it's worth returning to that theme. We can be wrong. I tend to be forgetful. I can never remember where I left my car keys. But now, thanks to a new gadget, my prodigal keys alert me to their whereabouts. I've got one of those key rings that beep when you clap or whistle. It's now old-fashioned technology, I know, but I like it. It's sort of retro. I'm so impressed by my key ring that I was hoping to mislay it so I could clap and get my money's worth. My wife thinks that I'm moving into an ultra-charismatic phase. I often march around the house clapping. Yesterday, I put my hands together so much, Kay thought I was working my way through an entire Songs of Fellowship book. Then I tried whistling, and Kay thought I was having an especially chirpy, happy day, which I wasn't. The keys weren't beeping back their whereabouts to their forgetful owner because I'd forgotten to switch the beeper on. The epitome of my amnesia was my forgetting which country I was in recently. Americans drive on the right side of the road, while we Brits, of course, drive on the left, as God surely intended. I drove down a busy Colorado street, blissfully unaware that I was not in the south of England, and I noticed that a car was speeding towards me on my side of the road, or so I thought. I alerted Kay. Observe, darling, a deluded chap heading our way. Let us pray that he recovers his sanity, I said, or something like that. Still, he came on right ahead like a kamikaze motorist. We were about to kiss at speed. I was certain that he would eventually see the error of his ways and get back onto his own side. 
About two seconds before crashing, I suddenly remembered. I'm in America. Perverse as it is, they don't drive on the left. Rats. It's me that's in the wrong. I swerved across the lanes just in time and was appalled to realise that my forgetfulness had nearly caused casualties. At first, I thought that I'd nearly killed a fellow Christian, since he seemed to be waving at me, pointing a finger heavenward. But then I looked a little closer. Reflecting on the episode later, I discovered something about me that again is more than a little troubling than forgetfulness. You see, it hadn't occurred to me that it could be me that was in the wrong, even though I clearly and obviously was. My reaction was instinctive. I'm right and you're not, so kindly move over. Such a deception could have doomed both of us to the long-term consumption of hospital food, or even worse. And again, a similar deception can mug us all. We think we're normally right. That uncomfortable idea is the reason for so much conflict in marriages, families, churches, and between nations. The notion that we might just have got the wrong end of the stick. For some people, it's unthinkable, particularly for those of us spiritual types who feel that every opinion is downloaded from heaven and that our viewpoint is God's viewpoint too. Stunning though it might seem, you and I can be wrong, and we often are. We are at times misguided, misinformed, hasty, unaware, or just plain stubborn. There are only a few short steps from confidence to arrogance. We know the Jesus who calls himself the truth, but we then quickly think that we always have the right angle and hold the monopoly on truth as well. Some of us occasionally affirm, I could be wrong, but then act as if the universe would explode if we were actually wrong. So let's face the facts. Some of our notions, choices, and maybe even our doctrinal slants are wrong. And if the thought that our theological viewpoints are not the completely accurate picture bothers us, let's remind ourselves that this side of eternity, we see but through smeared double glazing. To paraphrase that famous verse, but now we see through glass darkly. We find it in 1 Corinthians 13. The Bible is accurate, but our understanding of it is flawed. We'd all do well to think a little more, abandon some of our blustering, and sign up for the free but priceless education that comes when we listen carefully to others. Meanwhile, back in that car, having experienced a near miss, life didn't get any easier. I missed my turning, and I clapped my hands with frustration. The key ring beeped, and Kay clapped too and launched into singing, He is Lord and he is Lord, but we're not. As we've looked at this subject of unity, recognizing that we can be wrong, realizing that we need to be careful with our words, let's all take responsibility for maintaining unity. Sometimes I meet Christians who believe in the they people. They will take care of it. They will volunteer, they will serve, they will be kind and generous. Church is not about they, it's about us, me, you. So let's consider our own attitudes. Are we builders of unity or those who erode it? Challenging stuff. See you next time. Lucas on Life.